0: Hi, everyone. My name is Alexander Reed ross and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod, where we talk about the political violence that rocked Italy between the years of 1968 and 1982. In the last episode, we talked about the group Ordine Nuovo, an extra-parliamentary far-right organization aligned with the fascist movement and inspired by a spiritual leader named Giulio Evola. This fascist organization believed in committing acts of terror as political soldiers in order to destroy the Italian Republic and install a resurgent fascist government modeled after Mussolini's Italian Social Republic. At first, Ordine Nuovo was aligned with the Italian Social Movement, or the MSE, which was created in December 1946 from remnants of Mussolini's followers in the ruins of World War II. But in 1956, Ordine Nuovo split from the MSE, the Italian social movement, because they got tired of the reformist centrist bloc represented by the figure of Arturo Michelini, who had won election as their general secretary. Instead, they wanted the M.S.E. to become a radical, revolutionary, far-right party from specifically fascist roots, not some conservative, anti-communist party that wouldn't replace the Republican constitutional order. Part of the impetus for this departure from the Italian social movement came from the creation of a new international fascist organization called the European New Order, developed from fascist leaders in Germany, France, and England. This group would advance more open anti Semitism and more radical anti systemic rhetoric than its predecessor, the European Social Movement, which was formed in relation to the Italian social movement or the MSE. So, Ordine Nuovo, or New Order, was splitting with the MSE at the time, at a time where they could join the advent of a new, more incendiary fascist network called the European New Order. But after they split from the mass party model to create their own terrorist organization, Ordine Nuovo themselves experience a split when one of their own insists on creating a political movement that extends beyond the spiritualist doctrines of cultural struggle. See, Ordine Nuovo believed in Giulio Evola's teaching that the world was going through a Kali Yuga, or a dark age, and that they needed to wait in what they called the Cup of the Grail, for the Dark Age to pass. This doesn't mean that they didn't support violent action, but they didn't believe that they could bring about a revolution through direct action. Instead, they had to work to bring about the conditions through which a revolution could take place, and they didn't know exactly how they would go about doing this. The dissident member, Stefano della Chiaia, wanted to start immediately by simply attacking the left and taking over political organizations. This was more eagerly considered political work. And he wanted a free hand to run a militant group on the side. By 1958, the main organizers of Ordine Nuovo had refused to go along with della Chiaia's militancy so he broke away to form his own group called Avanguardia Nazionale. Avanguardia Nazionale's origins were not very auspicious. They opened up an office in a dismal cellar near the Trevi Fountain and started spreading propaganda in the outskirts of Rome. Most of their members came from the villages in the region, and they developed an ideological line that clearly broke from the M.S.E. and Ordine Nuovo. First of all, they rejected NATO completely, calling instead for what they called, quote, a free and independent Europe, using fascism as the clear point of origin. They also advanced efforts to infiltrate the autonomous workers' movements, which organized outside of the context of the Union leadership, taking part in a couple of strikes during the early 60s at Rome's Spess factory. Here, they broke with the fascist convention of corporatism, arguing that class struggle would remain unless capitalism was completely destroyed. And here, they also created a youth group called the Mediterranean Youth, which allowed in both students and workers, which was slightly different from the MSE. They started to publish a journal in 1963, which declared, quote, the Avanguardia Nazionale aims to A. Reaffirm the principles of honor, fidelity, hierarchy, and justice. B. Preserve the cult of the values of the spirit in the face of the threat of pseudo-materialist civilizations. C. Fight against the party democracy. D. Propagandize the socializing formula of a corporate system. E. Reaffirm the function of a national Europe the third force against East and West. F, complete the physical education of young people through sports activities. By the following year, however, Avanguardia Nazionale had entered into an organizational crisis due to the amount of violence they both faced and created. Here, the group was a vicious bunch which would engage in what fascists have called punitive expeditions since the days of the early 1920s. This means finding and beating up their opposition, humiliating them, and attempting to take over the streets with their publications and personnel. However, it's interesting to see their own narrative of victimization from that period to get a sense of how they tell their story. Here's what one of their militants said, and I'm getting this from Fiamma Celtica. At the end of 1964, we entered into crisis, both for lack of means and for the continuous clashes involving our militants. But it's not true that they were clashes that we were looking for. It is true, however, that we never escaped these street clashes. Moreover, opposite extremisms was a reality that had its roots in that civil war whose memory was still fresh on both sides. It was not we who started the aggression, also because, among other things, it did not suit us from a political point of view, but every inch of political freedom and physical space we earned, we were forced to win it with violence. It's a phase that I don't deny anyway, because it is part of the history of our country. After all, every action involved a reaction. If you didn't impose yourself in the physical clash then you had finished, you had closed, you could go home, because there was no possibility of expressing quietly and freely your thoughts. You would never have entered schools or universities. Street violence was therefore not a choice, but a need from which we did not flee and which I claim as a political fact, the son of that time. While they did initiate much of the violence, despite these words, And in fact, the whole organization splintered away from Ordine Nuovo because they didn't think the latter was violent enough. It's true that these methods did win them territories of Rome in particular. Gradually, year by year, Avanguardia Nazionale was able to carve a kind of chessboard out of the capital city in which territory would be designated by graffiti, wheat pastes, and other signs of political associations. In reality, both Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale were extremely violent fascist organizations. As world events shifted, their ideologies reflected their internal differences. The first big challenge was the Algerian War for Independence. I talk about this a bit with Shane Burley in our episode on the Piazza Fontana massacre, which I recommend going back and listening to. But the extra-parliamentary right was conflicted over Algeria. At first, Avanguardia Nazionale supported Algerian independence because France had what they considered a weak Republican system, while the main force fighting against France and Algeria was the so-called Army of National Liberation. The Army of National Liberation collaborated with Arab nationalists and German Nazis in their efforts to overthrow the French, so Avanguardia Nazionale celebrated them. However, the National Liberation Front soon took over from the Army of National Liberation, having a more Marxist line and left-wing ideology. At that point, Avanguardia Nazionale's support for independence became more lukewarm. For their part, the main leadership of Ordine Nuovo supported France in Algeria. Pino rauti recalls, quote, Of course, we were with the French against the Algerians, but this position of ours was not against the independence of peoples, nor in favor of colonialism, as it went down in history. We didn't see it like this at the time. For us, in those years, a war was being fought against the spread of subversion in the world, and to us, who were the most targeted by communist hatred, this could only scare. Of course, The Algerians had their good reasons, but at that moment we felt on our necks the breath of this strong breath of communism that expanded like wildfire in the world, also enlisting many good reasons, as always happens to the great historical phenomenon. The fact that many of these national liberation movements had embraced the communist cause led us, probably wrongly, to side with them. So you can get from that the idea that the, their self-image is somewhat anti-colonial, but also against communism. As Avanguardia Nazionale turned toward the Ordine Nuovo position of supporting France and Algeria, both groups began to romanticize the group of French ultranationalist officers fighting for colonialism. The Secret Army Organization, also known by their or- acronym, the OAS. But the OAS itself was comprised of different tendencies, from local colonists who sought to protect their land from expropriation, to pro-NATO forces, to anti-NATO forces. Avanguardia Nazionale supported the anti-NATO side of the OAS, which produced a notorious manifesto for Europe while Ordine Nuovo supported the traditionalist faction of the OAS led by a man named Yves Guerin Serac. In Algeria, they believed that the French were spreading civilization and modernization. Here, Rauti states, I have always distinguished in reality between Anglo-Saxon colonialism, which has never been a population which has never been about population and modernization, and a Latin-type colonialism, starting with that of the ancient Romans to the French or Portuguese one, there's no doubt that the second colonialism has repopulated lands and that repopulating them, it's found some sorts of balance, to the limit of integration and granting some more or less partial form of citizenship. In short, Dutch or Belgian colonialism cannot be compared to French colonialism, which brings one and a half million of its citizens to Algeria and tries to make it, in every sense, an appendix of the motherland. This sort of ambivalence about colonialism has been a feature of fascism since Mussolini, of course, who even in 1914 insisted, apropos of French in Algeria, that, quote, an artificial antith- antithesis has been created between socialism and colonialism. Here, too, a distinction must be made. Socialists are not opposed to economic and commercial colonialism, but to political and military colonialism, conquest colonialism. Five years later, in 1919, Mussolini insisted that quote, Italian imperialism does not exist, nor does British imperialism exist not even the french one i should understand once and for all about this word imperialism imperialism is the eternal and immutable law of life basically it is nothing but the need the desire and the will for expansion that every individual that every living and vital people has within him and last but not least mussolini would differentiate italian from english imperialism just like pino Rauti would do later stating quote and we do not fear the accusation of imperialists there is imperialism and there's imperialism german and roman imperialism the empire that of force and that of intelligence the italian people must necessarily be expansionist it must follow a boldly seafaring policy so long story short It may seem weird that Ordine Nuovo as a fascist group tried to establish some kind of exception to national sovereignty in the third world by arguing for a benign form of modernizing imperialism with roots in ancient Rome, but this was precisely what Mussolini had also done even before helping to found the fascist movement. Now, although Ordine Nuovo was against military dictatorship and in favor of outright fascism, They did begin to believe, partly through their relationship with the OAS, that a military dictatorship could help get rid of democracy in Italy, and that's what they really wanted. Toward these ends, they collaborated with a faction of the military aligned with General Giuseppe Aloia, who became Chief of Staff of the Italian Army in 1962. The full extent of collaboration remains unknown during this period in the 1960s, but it's presumed to include, most generally, gathering intelligence on both the right and left wing while enjoying the protection of the state as they carried out anti-communist subversion, such as beating people up, bombing headquarters, intimidating union workers, and even infiltration. One of the operatives with military intelligence, Guido Giannettini, became a member of Ordine Nuovo and worked with Pino Rauti on a book accusing lawyer's enemy in the armed services, Giovanni de Lorenzo, of being a secret communist. We talk about this more in Piazza Fontana episode, but in 1965, Ordine Nuovo members attended a conference brimming with spooks, politicians, and military officers, in which a general strategy was outlined, also known as the strategy of tension full counterinsurgency war against the left including direct attacks, infiltration, and false flags against civilian targets to make the left look like terrorists. Increasingly, the Ordine Nuovo seemed like clandestine foot soldiers of the military's counterinsurgency strategy, which was itself tied to a potential coup against the republican system. Rauti and some friends took a trip to Spain after the conference and linked up with the international fascist movement there. He's quite open about all the contacts he made. These are his reflections. Quote, it must be borne in mind that in those years, Spain above all had become the cradle of world fascism. We went to Spain and met Leon de Grel, the one to whom Hitler said, if I had a son, I would like him to be like you. We met Otto Skorzeny, the head of the SS Special Forces, Mussolini's liberator. Evola also told us about him. He told us to go meet him because he had met him in Germany and had made a great impression on him. He was right. We thought he was just a soldier of fortune, but he was very prepared. In Madrid... He directed a European circle, organized conferences and debates, but everything in the sunlight. Madrid was full of Croatian refugees, they were Ustasha, they printed their stamps, their coins, they had created a real government in exile. There were the last men of the Iron Guard, the Romanian fascists of it was somewhat It was a somewhat restless world, also full of informants and mythomaniacs, as well as beautiful women a world that, however, had a great influence on Latin America. Juan Perón himself took refuge in Madrid after fleeing Argentina, and in Madrid we met the author of the first Bolivian revolution, Paz Estensoro. He was considered a dark agitator who came from Bolivia, a country completely unknown to us. Well, after two or three years, if he doesn't guide the campesinos with dynamite and doesn't occupy La Paz, giving rise to a national popular regime of national socialism. Returning to Skorzeny, I remember that I once attended a conference he presided over. I talked about my theses on the Slavic world and Germanism, criticizing the former and exalting the second. At one point, a Russian prince arose, sons of white exiles, who told me blah, 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 blah. This, pa- this part goes on for ages and isn't really interesting. The point is, Rauti knew he was rubbing on an- elbows with what he calls spies and mythomaniacs, so he was obviously not naive to the whole thing. But a future fight that would prove even more decisive for the Italian extra-parliamentary right in 19- came in 1967. The, gr- the coup of Greek colonels against the left-leaning, democratically-elected government. Rauti vaunted what was known as the Greek colonel's coup, which was precipitated by the night of fire, during which the right set fires around Athens and blamed the left, overthrowing the government as an answer for the supposed chaos. He recalled, They declared war on the corruption of an old, falling bourgeois regime in our opinion at that time, the military world had remained the only environment that could have changed the expansion of corruption. Of course, we didn't know that behind the colonels there was the CIA, and that what we saw was just a straw fire that would dissolve like snow in the sun. But when you don't have immediate success in your dreams, then you cling to the surrogates of those dreams that are put forward from time to time, The authoritarian coup, temptation, that pervaded the Italian and European fascist world in those years was triggered by the example of the OAS. We lived in a nation with limited sovereignty, with the communist danger at our borders, and we thought that a reaction of the armed forces could be a harbinger of healthier, less democratic principles in the deteriorating sense of the word. While it's definitely bogus that Ordine Nuovo didn't realize that the CIA was collaborating with the Greek or Italian military, partly because that's what embassies do and the military wasn't particularly successful at keeping its counterinsurgency under wraps anyway, the reality is also that Rauti underplayed the agency of these Italian anti-communist networks partly because they were ultimately unsuccessful at overthrowing the government despite several attempts. At the same time, you can see that he saw a military coup as bearing the potential for greater uh, sovereignty in opposition to liberal democracy. Anyway, he continues. Indeed, in the 60s, there was a shift to more reactionary, less revolutionary positions especially compared to the doctrinal premises of the 50s. Certainly, it was a regression in terms of experimentation and ideological innovation, but it was an obligatory regression because, as I repeat, Soviet expansion in the Third World made us fear that overnight they would attack in Europe. Returning to our Spanish and Portuguese acquaintances of those years, the same goes for the Greeks. We saw, the political, we saw the political intellectual aspect there. For example, Guérin-Serac and the French OAS officers who, like him, had fled France to Portugal gave rise to very interesting initiatives and magazines. And we frequented them. According to the Bureau of Confidential Affairs, Rauti finally meets Yves-Guérin-Serac of the OAS in Lisbon in January, 1968. By that time, Serac had created a kind of front group called Agenter Press, which purports to be a press agency, but actually fields fascist agents working to subvert democracy around the world in collaboration with the Portuguese secret services and the CIA. Allegedly, a Roman journalist from the MSC named Armando Mortilla, who acted as a permanent informant of the Confidential Affairs Division of the Minister of the Interior, with the codename Aristo, had set the meeting up. The meeting resolved to strengthen the flow of confidential information between Agente Press and Ordine Nuovo, as well as another far-right group based in Portugal called Ordre Later that year, a group of Italian fascists visited the Greek dictatorship under the aegis of a student trip, including members of Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale. There they met the officers involved in the new government and were able to exchange ideas on strategies that could be adapted to Italy. Again, it's utterly naive to imagine that they didn't recognize the hand of European secret services, since the Ordine Nuovo was knowingly collaborating with Aloia of the Italian military and all of the military intelligence apparatus that falls under it. For this reason, we must interrogate the intention of the denial, which is twofold. To deflect blame for their failure on the bad faith of Western intelligence and to act as exploited innocents in a grand chessboard when they were actively attempting to engage in global conflicts to bring about a military dictatorship that might usher in a new fascist wave. As for other major third world wars, the extra-parliamentary right tended to continue their public autonomy regarding both NATO and the Soviets. But Avanguardia Nazionale was a clearer opponent of the West they didn't support the Vietnamese struggle but sort of praised the Viet Cong privately. When the 6-day war popped off between Israel and neighboring Ar- Arab states in 1967, the MSC supported Israel, while Avanguardia Nazionale militants showed up at the Egyptian embassy to try to enlist as foreign fighters for the anti-Zionist forces. They were turned away partly because the conflict had basically ended already but Stefano della Chiaia remembered the occasion fondly. He said, quote, We must not forget that Nasser was part of that group of young Arab officers who had sided with the Axis in World War II. It was therefore a natural choice for us. But even as Avanguardia Nazionale attempted to distance itself from some of the pro-NATO forces that... Ordine Nuovo had been working with, Stefano Della Chiaia had by this point become an active informant, if not operative, of the Bureau of Confidential Affairs. The other major fascist ex- extra-parliamentary organization that was prominent among Italian subcultures at the time was Giovanni Europa. This was actually the Italian chapter of a European organization called jeune Europe, led by Jean-François Theria, a former SS member who had been an important part of the fascist scene described by Pino Rauti in Spain. Giovanni Europa had been established in 1963 amid a cluster of other efforts to establish a convergence between left and right nationalist rebels, like Giovanni Nazione. One member who had been on the board of the Italian national TV network RAI, named Franco Cardini, explained his position. Quote, I was fascinated, even then, by the idea of Europe, and so it ended up that I also left the MSC. I and other heretics of the MSC remained strangers to both fashion leftistry and westernism. We liked Nasserism, Peronism, and Guévarism, which we did not see as Marxist movements, but as the rebellion of oppressed peoples for centuries. Ours was a reading, if you allow me the term, spiritualist and national socialist of Castroism. In short, ours was a right-wing but anti-Western vision. We saw the risks of the development of capitalism and technological progress. So Giovanna Europa tried to support rebellions against liberal democracy while trying to draw them away from Marxism and toward fascism in a sort of right-wing anti-imperialist movement. They particularly endorsed Peronism, which promoted a militaristic nationalism reliant on mass popular support harnessed through social programs and the incorporation of unions into the state. In an interview with Tiria, Perón declared, Castro is a promoter of liberation. He had to rely on one imperialism because the closeness of the other threatened to crush him. But the goal of Cubans is the liberation of the peoples of Latin America. Their sole intention is to form a bridgehead for the liberation of continental countries. That Guevara is a symbol of this liberation. He was great because he served a great cause to the point of embodying it. He is the man of the ideal. It's perhaps true that Giovanni Europa was closer ideologically to Avanguardia Nazionale than to Ordine Nuovo, but it drew in members of both. And its first national conference in 1968 brought in none other than Pino Romualdi, who had been one of the earliest leaders of the post-war fascist movement with the Fasci di Azione Rivoluzionaria. This conference included the fascist ideologue Claudio Muti, who we'll talk about in future episodes, I'm sure. Others who started to emerge within the orbit of Giovanni Europa included Franco Freda, Freda, a white-haired attorney from the city of Padua in the Veneto region who led the local chapter of Ordine Nuovo. Renato Cinquemani and Ugo Guadenzi from Giovanni Europa went on a few months later to form a similar group called Organizzazione Lotta di Popolo, which distinctly had the same initials as the Palestinian Liberation Organization, in Italian the Organizzazione Liberazione Palestina. So the PLO was slightly more militant than Giovanni Europa and attracted many of the people in the latter group. They had a few offices in Rome and Naples, a newspaper, in a weird position close to Prudonian mutualism. As Guadenzì later reflected, quote, We reiterated European centrality against imperialism and neocolonialism, rejected any statist idea that oppressed the freedom of citizens, both right and left. We proposed the Europe of homelands, also making a federalist speech. The following year, Giovanni Europa joined the Communist Party of Italy, Marxist-Leninist, in signing a condemnation of Soviet imperialism, while in Parma, the two groups coordinated a demonstration against Russian-American imperialism. Now, it's interesting to note that Renato Corcio, one of the founding members of the Red Brigades, had passed through Giovanni Nazione before joining the Communist Party of Italy, Marxist-Leninist briefly in Trento that same year. However, I'm not sure if he was involved in the joint actions or statements of the Communist Party of Italy Marxist-Leninist and Giovanni Europa. Despite these weird efforts and speculation by the military police that they were funded by China, Giovanni Europa seemed outmoded compared to Lota di Popolo and the latter's organization's critique of capitalism was ported into an obsessive anti-Zionism in a way that seemed f- fairly unique at the time. So the following year, Giovanna Europa officially dissolved and its members entered the Lotta di Popolo during a weird conference in which Franco Freda started distributing his pamphlet, The Disintegration of the System. Representing the convergence of the Giovanni Europa Lotta di Popolo strain and the Ordine Nuovo, Freda supported a kind of populist ideal of a people's state which would come from left and right and resemble a fascist imperium through the combination of militant ultranationalist movements throughout Europe and left-wing nationalists bent on disrupting the status quo through terrorism. Here Freda especially looked to the increasingly militant Maoist program, riding the wave of national liberation struggles in the 1960s as an inspiration and cultivating a strange and idiosyncratic ideology that some called Nazi-Maoist. A typical utterance of the current of this current comes from Lota Di Popolo, quote The fundamental task of the revolutionary vanguard will be to destroy in the current content the instruments of capitalist imperialism and to eradicate the myth's customs mentality made up of cliches and slogans that the system has imposed. In the present historical situation, the only revolutionary reality that is able to face and defeat capitalist imperialism and outline the march of the authentic human order can be represented by a Europe liberated and built through a people's struggle. A Europe that finds its unity in the maturation and revolutionary convergence of the peoples of Europe, not the third bloc aiming at becoming the third imperialism, but the guiding force of all oppressed and exploited peoples aiming at breaking the Soviet-American Holy Alliance and freeing man from the oppression, of money and technicalism, subservient to the United States of America. But despite this current becoming fashionable with Freda's group of Ordinovistas, the Avanguardia Nazionale really didn't want anything to do with it. De La Chiaia, their leader, recalls, quote, For a long time we were confused with Nazi Maoists, with whom we had nothing to do with. Lota di Popolo had taken on a Nazi Maoist image that we couldn't understand, It was an attempt to produce theories that came from Northern Europe, which proposed a synthesis between two opposing ideological conceptions, communism and fascism, even seeing in Mao a continuity of the work of the figure of the Fuhrer, because this was the substance of their theses. It was a very emotional discourse based on aesthetic suggestions, certainly not on an analysis of ideologies and political content. Thus began to appear the inscriptions Hitler and Mao united in the fight, or neither Christ nor Marx viva Mao. Instead, while supporting the tactical alliance with young people from other political backgrounds for a generational unity against the system, we wanted to maintain the different identities of origin without confusing and ambiguous speeches. Delikiaia goes on. Quote, the combinations made between us and Freda were also wrong. We have never had anything to do with him or his theses. I personally saw Freda twice in my life, the first in 1964, the second in 1965, when Pino Rauti convened a demonstration of all the extra-parliamentary groups at the Brancaccio Theater in Rome to try to unite them in a single organization. The third time I saw Freda was in the courtroom of Catanzaro during the trial for Piazza Fontana. I was in a cage and he came to lay down. As for Freda's theses, it should be noted that the things he said in the second half of the 1960s had already been implicit in our political actions for years. Already in 1964, we proposed a Mediterranean pact composed of Latin and Arab countries in anti-imperialist and anti-Israeli function. In short, we certainly did not need to get closer to Freda's theories, since we have supported very similar things since 1960. So, while Avanguardia Nazionale and Ordine Nuovo certainly collaborated, Freda's doctrine has never been, was never fully endorsed by his own organization or accepted by the other. Instead, De La Chiaia simply agrees with most of its bases while rejecting the importance of Mao. As for Ordine Nuovo, however, the Paduan attorney Franco Freda would play an increasingly important, if deranged and violent, role in the group's worst atrocities, ultimately leading to its inexorable demise. By this point in 1969, Ordine Nuovo had exploded in size. They had chapters all over Italy, and their reputation had international recognition among far-right groups. In a letter to the Roman headquarters, the Messina chapter of Ordine Nuovo feverishly wrote, Dear comrades, we inform you that we are taking an interest in various economic initiatives that could subsequently alleviate our financial worries. We cannot describe our projects by letter, but we assure you that we are doing things with the utmost seriousness, studying everything scientifically. We've made contact with an industrial exporter abroad capable of supplying us with excellent products that we believe can be placed in South Africa, Rhodesia, and Greece. We believe that the Ordine Nuovo is well known in these countries, and we think that presenting presenting oneself as Ordino Visti may already be a credential. Two former Ordine Nuovo members confessed that in mid-April 1969 the group met to decide on a new strategy whereby the Padua cell led by Freda would plant bombs in public places like trains and trade fairs in efforts to blame the left and make people feel the need for a state of order to quell the chaos. It started with Freda attacking the office of the rector at the University of Padua, and quickly escalated to an attack on the telecommunications bank of Milan Central Station, which caused some 20 injuries. For this, a couple of anarchists would be initially blamed, but ultimately Freda faced conviction for it. Later in the month, Giannettini and Freda joined forces to infiltrate the left by presenting some confidential dossier on the right, full of fabrications to the leader of the Communist Party of Italy, Marxist-Leninist. This doesn't seem to have really advanced their agenda very much, although it might have been an interesting attempt. Similarly, attacks on the Palace of Justice in Turin and Milan both failed the next month. One of Freda's associates, Giovanni Ventura, went on to plant a bomb on the windowsill at the Milan court, but it also failed to detonate. Later on in the summer, on August 8th, Ordine Nuovo members exploded eight bombs in trains and train stations around Italy, having been placed by Freda's team in Rome, Milan, Pescara, and Venice. The following month, on October 2nd, an Ordine Nuovo bomb destroys the Marxist-Leninist Union in Messina. But the next day, some wires got crossed on the other side of the country. Rauti's close collaborator Giannettini is set to join the President of the Republic, Giuseppe Saragat, on a mission to Trieste with press credentials provided by the MSC's newspaper, Secolo d'Italia. Unofficially, he had been commissioned by the military intelligence to, quote, make contact with Yugoslav journalists behind the curtain who present aspects of vulnerability from an ideological point of view and who are open to the Western way of life. However, on that same day, something else is afoot. Allegedly, Ordine Nuovo member Carlo Delio from the Veneto brought explosives to a Trieste apartment where four other members, Francesco Neami, Manlio Portolan, Claudio Bressan, and Claudio Ferraro Martino, made a couple of bombs. One of the bombs weighing six kilos was planted on the windows of a children's school and set to explode during class time, but the device failed. Another attack elsewhere at the border also failed. All the accused fascists were acquitted despite witness testimony from two other neo-fascists. A couple of weeks later, Giannettini goes to Germany with Pino Rauti to meet some high-level fascists and military manufacturers. While all these bombings and attacks are taking place, Rauti looks increasingly disconnected from the group's militants doing the dirty work and causing damage. The final straw comes when the radical fascist Giorgio Almirante is elected to leadership of the MSE and Rauti decides to rejoin the Ordine Nuovo to the fascist party fold. One Ordinovista residing in South Africa wrote home with considerable regret and sadness. I receive your letter with the fatal news of the return of the center to the MSE. It still doesn't seem real to me and I can't seem to reason through it. But how is it possible that it ends up like this? I can't find words to express my indignation. The conclusion to be drawn for me is only one. This is the end of the center as an organization of revolutionary politics. One cannot join a party paid for by the American boss and Confindustria, an anti-national party therefore, and then hope to be taken seriously if one poses as revolutionaries. The national revolution is the CIA-funded uprising against the Yalta order. Not bad as a Machiavellian design, but how sad to end up like this sitting down on a managerial Messina chair, after having measured oneself, even with the traditional values and symbols, to end up playing with various mixed drinks. So the Ordine Nuovo was splitting apart at the seams, in one direction toward political revolution, and in the other toward rejoining the fascist party. And it would be in this tenuous political situation that on December 7th, 1969, the Frey de of Ordine Nuovo would bomb the agricultural bank in the Piazza Fontana of Milan, killing 17 people and injuring more than 80, in what became known as the mother of all massacres. In the next episode, we'll cover the inception of the splinter group Movimento Politico Ordine Nuovo and its ensuing trail of bombings and destruction and death. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and thanks again for listening to the Years of Lead Pod. If you liked what you hear, please leave us a nice rating and give us five stars or whatever on the platform of your choice. And if you have the opportunity, feel free to pitch in at the Patreon, where we've got lots of bonus episodes interviews, and stuff you may never have heard of before. (laughs) Thanks again. This has been the Years of Leadpod.